This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 beer and brewing enthusiasts worldwide. The AHA publishes Zymergy Magazine, hosts the National Homebrew Competition and Homebrew Con, and equips members with brewing tips, proven recipes, and money-saving deals on beer, food, and brewing supplies. Founded in 1978, the AHA remains true to founder Charlie Papazian's timeless advice, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Celebrate beer and homebrewing with the AHA at homebrewersassociation.org. Hey everybody, it's John Hall, Senior Editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and I find myself in one of the hottest brewing regions of the country. If you're not already aware of the Hudson Valley, you certainly should be, uh, especially when it comes to New York, and I'm actually close to the border of the Catskill Mountains and at Equilibrium Brewing, which is for those of you who regularly line up for can releases or trade uh, across the country, this is a brewery that has certainly uh, been top of mind for you for, for, for quite some time. And in a departure from our normal format this, this week, um, it's a two-for-one episode. I have both of the co-founders of the uh, brewery here uh, with me, and I'm going to ask you guys to introduce yourselves just so people, as we're listening, can hear your voices and know who's speaking when. So, Okay. So I'm Ricardo Petroni. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the brewery, and I'm dealing mostly with uh, ground production and all the things that are necessary for getting the beer to our clients and cons- consumers. Uh, I'm Pete Oates. I'm the CEO and co-founder, and I invent the beers and the processes and the collect the microbes that make the beers that you guys drink. And Pete, I, this started because of your love of beer. Yeah, we were doing a lot of 13-hour trips to Vermont, you know, 13 hours in one day back and forth to get... Were you living here? Yeah. Okay. About 20 minutes north, but basically... Okay. And so we were going up and getting Alchemist, Hill Farmstead, uh, Lawson's, and some other other beers, uh, and that started putting strains on my work life, my my relationships. And uh, Ricardo had the idea of like, hey, why don't you just, you know, start brewing the beer you want to drink, and that saves you thirteen hours, and, and that sort of evolved into <laughs> his, his master plan of opening up a brewery himself. Um, when you say. Uh, you know, brewing the beers that, that you like. It was obviously the hazy IPAs and some of the, you know, were there other beers that were, were coming out of that area that were speaking to you? Yeah, I mean, the way we, we brew it here is we kind of brew what we want to drink. And so we started with hazy IPAs because that is what we really like to drink. And also you can make them faster, which I think is important for opening a business. Mm-hmm. Um, then we had to sort of make a decision between stouts and sours, which are two of our other favorite categories. And we've put a fair amount of time and energy into developing our sour program because the women in the project said, we like sours more than stats. And that was quite simple. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we're definitely working on our, our dark beer program as well, but we did sours before stouts because the women said so, basically. Where'd you get your start home brewing? What was the, what was the path for you? Um, there was originally another person who was, was going to brew with Ricardo. I was just going to be a, a passive slash active drinker at the brewery. And 
and I started brewing in Bachelor 2 with him. I, I have a very strong science background, mm -hmm. so the, the water chemistry stuff is very uh, familiar with, my, with my, my training. And I started seeing things, and he kind of got other plans and moved to Tennessee, and Ricardo needed someone to, to head up the, the brewing. Um, so I started just building a system for myself out of uh, pots and pans and um, just pieces I could collect to, to make it how I thought it made sense. So you weren't doing something like right out of the box? No, we, we, I mean, my pilot system I kind of built from scratch. So it was... Yeah, it was an interesting discussion. I was surprised about that because I mean, like, I, I started home brewing like 20 years ago. And I started like any home brewery starts, you know, like you start with like the first thing you'd have is a pot in your kitchen. The kitchen is small and then you have like a, typically some uh, extract brewing first and then you move into grain brewing and, and whatnot. And, and I... I I started brewing with with Pete, and Pete, um, Pete was like, "Yes, I'm doing this with the grain." It's like, are you starting full grain? It was like the system was insane. It was better than any system I used to have, and and he built it on his own. I mean, he was like, uh, so. I, "I remember was it a standard five gallon homebrew." It, it was five gallon, but it was um, a, a combination of electric gas. Yeah, it was a combination because a lot of the processes are automated. I mean, we were with uh, rims. Yeah, it was like really. We solid. we were. Um, up to six batches a day, which is a lot. Six bring six batches a day is pretty crazy. And this is just for fun, or is this like in the yeah, lead up to the? <laughs> I get a little excited sometimes, and I go overboard. It's sort of my personality trait. Um, and so once I saw that, like I could, oh, I could do six batches a day, and I had the space and the setup and six taps, and, and I wanted to try all these different experiments. That I wanted the system to be sort of semi-automated, and I could you know, brew a bunch of stuff in parallel to compress time, but for that to happen, I needed a rims to maintain the temperature for me, and needed a, an electric, and so, like, the the whole system was fairly automated and, and running on electric, uh, and so that was just sort of put together because it made made sense. Okay, and this was just you... Well, I remember the first batch I was going to do, he was like, here, just buy DME and boil it and try to make a beer, and I went, no. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh, okay. So we're starting, kind of, we blew in up three levels. I mean, it was, it was clear, it was clear to me after we brewed together kind of three or four times that he was going to know a lot more about brewing than I knew already, you know, and it was clear to me. So, so it's like, okay, so this is really going your way. So I was kind of more, I, I turned into helping mode and I was like uh, helping on what was, what was going on in the brewing and it, it was a lot of fun. Intense. What was the first beer you made? Homebrew. Uh, EQM, which is now it's a it's, in a, your line. it's a very malty double IPA with a little bit of um, I think we used orange zest in that first. Orange ones, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's back when I was researching hop oils, and I was like, oh, you know, hops can be astringent and bitter, and they have the same oil in citrus peel. So let's throw citrus peel in there as a good source of like astringent free hop oils. I mean, it, it, of course, it, very orangey. Sure, know? but it, it strikes me though, if this is like the first beer that you're making right off the bat, I mean, it, again, it, it sort of flies in the face of, I think what so many other home brewers turned pro did, you know, where it's like, oh, I got a Mr. Beer kit and I made an amber and it tasted, it tasted terrible. Well, they probably didn't go through a PhD program at MIT. Okay, so I mean, it, there, there is the scientific- Like, like I have yeah. a, a pretty extensive background of working in, in labs with very high-end engineering and scientific equipment. So, so this wasn't a big stretch for me to try to put together this electric system that, you know, steeped grain and pushed water out of grain. That was <laughs> not so complicated compared to some of this stuff like, 
I mean, I, I worked at Sandia National Labs for a while where there was literally armed guys with machine guns to protect their hydrology secrets. It's never made any sense to me. Yeah. But, you know, that was a pretty serious lab that had some pretty high-end fluid mechanics equipment. So this this is more of just a, a, a walk in the park for you then? Yes and no. I mean, sort of one thing that I love about Bruin so much is that it's it's really sophisticated. I mean, once you really get into the weeds and look at distributions of thousands of compounds and which one does what and how it affect the sensory profile, like it's pretty intense. I mean, this is probably a weird thing to say, but right now I'm still not 100% sure how to make a double IPA. Okay. And that's a weird thing to say. And I know that because we make some really good double IPAs, but things are, you know, even here evolving day to day. It's one reason we have our research series because we're continuing to, to grow, learn and expand our process and our knowledge and then apply that hopefully into the glass, which is at the end of the day, does it smell good, taste good, feel good in your mouth, those kind of things. But you're looking at it at, at almost the molecular level then when you're putting these recipes together and when you're doing yeah, sensory evaluation. I mean, I, mean, I, I heard um, Sean Hill say once that brewing is, it's not like 50% art, 50% science. It's like, it's like I forget his numbers, so I'm yeah. quoting that, but it's like <laughs> seven eighths science, one eighth art. And this is... I mean, this is really science. It's concentrations of stuff. There's mass fluxes happening all over the place. They're changing as it evolves. And then at the end of the day, you get a concentration of stuff in your glass. And that's what you and the consumer experience. And so how do you manipulate that to be is to have all the flavors in the right order, the right place and, and you know, make it a beautiful beer. I, I want to back up to uh, not knowing how to make a double IPA because I mean, that, that sounds like I, I, I think I get what you're saying, but I'd love for you to expand upon that a little bit more because I, I, I think people might scratch their heads when they come here and they get a double IPA from you and they enjoy drinking it. Yeah. I, um, I, yeah. I, I, I guess what, what that sort of means is that um, we've been constantly experimenting at the small scale, kind of behind the scenes, and figuring out some pretty cool stuff that has this really amazing flavor and aroma profile. And we haven't been 100% sure how to produce that at the large scale. I mean, we can make MC squared like we've been making MC squared, no problem. But in terms of the potential I see that, that what hops can do for a drinking experience, um, there's these really beautiful dimensions of flavor and aroma that we're just now understanding what's creating them, how to, how to keep them in the glass, and how do you really understand and optimize the process such that you have this really beautiful, elegant, uh, hoppy beer. And so we're, we're literally just now, I mean, coming out with batches. I think I will put it in a different way. I mean, I will just say that what Pete is referring to is that we don't think our double IPAs are finished. They can be improved. They can be... Yeah, how do, you, how do we make what I would call our perfect double IPA, where I, where I eventually go, I don't know how to make this any better. So I don't, I don't think we're there. How do we make really good double IPAs? Yeah, we do that all the time. Um, but how do you dial it in and perfect it? I mean, I was talking to Dan Suarez not too long ago from Suarez from a brewery, and he was saying that a recipe is actually never finished in his mind. That I there's always ways of you yeah. Know, that's what, what I think that's correct. correct. I know that gives yeah. you an eye twitch a little bit, but no, I'm happy with that. <laughs> Every now and then it gets into complications. Well, when's this beer gonna be ready? I don't know. How many barrels are we getting? I don't know. <laughs> So and, and that's got to be the the difference between you know the 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 
the art and science and then adding in the business as well because it is a numbers game and you guys are here in this uh, uh, fairly large warehouse you guys are building out a tap room right now I mean there's there's financial considerations like it, it there, you go from being a home brewer where even if you're brewing six times a day which is like, I'm that's still it, it, I'm glad you admit that's the oh, first step no, of admitting was, you have a problem is, the, is admitting that yeah um, to actually you know making sure that what is coming out of the tanks is, is dollars and cents um, you know ha, has it been a struggle to sort of rectify that or has the core brands that you guys release allowed you guys to just screw around I think it's a balance of, of both you know, yeah I would agree on that I, I think you know uh, there was a lot of um, investigation before we started so um, that that's what allows us I mean people were surprised when we actually got the first beer out of here and it was a really a very good beer that people really liked and uh, and it wasn't like there wasn't a lot of trials once we got into the market and I think it has to do with the six budgets per day for two or three years before we actually got to the market. I mean, we started, Pete started brewing, uh, we started brewing together at the beginning, 13, 2013 or so. Um, and, and we sold the first beer in 2016. So those three years show up in, into, into that. Um, that said, we are still evolving the style of beers. And I think, you know, we, I mean, after a long time working together, we developed a good way of of both understanding what are the the good implications about making the beer as you know better and kind of pushing the envelope, but at the same time that pushing the envelope being kind of constrained to something that doesn't wreck the business because I mean it's not what we want to do. So so I think we found a good balance. Yeah, it's, on that. It's, it's a balance. I'm happy with that. Um, so when you're creating a recipe, then Pete, what is your where do you look for inspiration? Um, anywhere and anything that smells and tastes good, basically. You know, okay. It's just what what gives me an amazing experience when I, I consume something, and, and how would I translate that to a beer? Sort of, you know, we have an arsenal of, of different microbes, different processes, different ingredients available, and I taste something and I say, ooh, like what? What was that? That was really sort of like, that caused me a lot of pleasure to to consume that. And how would I take sort of dimensions of that and translate it into a beer? And what would be the best style? Like. You know, would that best be suited in a farmhouse style, or is that a hop I can mimic some with that, or is that you know some decadent chocolate coffee thing that needs to be in a stout, that, that kind of stuff? And are you are you drawing these inspirations from food, or just individual ingredients, or other beers that you're trying? Anything, anything. Um, certainly, a lot of inspiration from other beers out there. Of you know, there'll be there'll be a certain dimension. Where I'm like, oh, what what is that? That was really sort of it gave me this really nice mouthfeel. Like, what caused that? And once you understand what's doing that, you can then piece that together with other things you understand to try to make a final product. Is there a beer that you can walk us through that you've done recently that started with that brief inspiration or that, that you know, flittering inspiration as it were? Um, one beer that surprised us a lot was the, the collab with Other Half, the Dreamwave fluctuation, uh, because I have not really been a big fan of lactose in hoppy beers. Just because it's it's too sweet and like I don't know if you're allowed to say that these days. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, like, like my drinking profile for a fun drinking Saturday would be like five or six IPAs and then some sours and the stouts. But to me, if if the beer had too much lactose in it, then I could only have one of them, and then I needed something else. And you know, plus we're just coming out of bikini season, and I have to sure. yeah. maintain my sexy on the beach. 
And and so the, the Dreamwave fluctuation working with Sam, I, I think, gave us a nice kind of balance of sort of on the lower side of lactose, where it still sort of gave that smooth kind of finish lactose does, but still maintain its drinkability. And so we used that beer recently to release like Hop Wave 2, like we did uh, this weekend. And so that was one of the things of like, you know, even drawing inspiration from one of our own beers of like, oh, that really seemed to work well. Um, let's try it with, you know, a different grain bill, a different fermentation profile, a different hop bill. And how does that process fit together with um, something we'd already done that worked well? And, and the results, did you have that sort of, that final pleasing result that you were looking yeah, for? Yeah, yeah, very pleased with Hop Wave too. Um, you obviously do a lot of things with hops and, and you know, you're, you're, again, I, I think that there's a lot of brewers these days who, um, are just, you know, simply adding poundage, uh, just because that's what you're supposed to do. And, you know, it's, it's DDH and that means something different to, to, to every little brewery, but, but you're actually spending a lot of time looking at, uh, the, the actual molecular makeup of a lot of these hops and, and, and looking at, um, you know, ways different temperatures can, uh, impart different, uh, uh different flavors. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can you can make some. You know, going back to the six batches a day I did. You know, a lot of those ended up in my bushes. Okay. Because you can make some pretty gross beers with lots of hops. When you drive past that house now, are they, are they still alive or are they? You uh, probably have CTZ plants growing somewhere in my rhododendrons <laughs> because you're like, you know, let's let's do a nine pound per barrel all CTZ batch and, and and do some other things that really didn't work out well. I mean, a lot of what we learned was was through. Um, negative experiments where you went, wow, this is, this is gross. This didn't work at all. Mm-hmm. And, and you start learning like there's, it's not just, it's poundage. It's a lot of the process and how do you, how do you pull the good stuff out of hops and leave some of the more astringent sort of overly bitter things behind in hops and, and what exactly allows these kind of nice flavor profiles to end up in the glass. I mean, I, I think in some ways I think about beer from reverse engineering from the glass backwards. Yeah. Because like, you kind of know what you want to start with, and then how do you get that going backwards? And that helps develop your, your process step. What do you mean, what you want to end with? Yeah, like, yeah. it's like when the, when the, at the end of the day, with right, all the math models and the science and the Australian hops you can get in the world, if what you get in the glass isn't good, then you sort of fail as a brewer. And so you kind of know what you're looking for, and then how do you run that backwards to eventually you're going to pull grain in, out, out of the silo and mash in at some temperature and it's going to pull this distribution of sugars and then you're going to whirlpool and polyphenols and proteins are going to bind and all these other things are going to happen and there's all these crazy things happens with yeast and fermentation and that depends on temperature and, and pH and all these other variables. How do you put them all together to produce what you want in the glass for the, for the person or the can? And you're looking at that for, I mean, each and every recipe that you're doing, obviously. Yeah, I mean, that being said, like, you know, once... We don't reinvent the double IPA every time we do a double IPA. So there's definitely you know, some things like, oh, well, this temperature profile gives us good distribution of sugar. So we don't reinvent yeah. the wheel every it was, time. It, it was interesting because in my, in my head, it was like uh, all the initial years, there was like uh, this development of, of the main basics of the process. You know? And what I see is that now we are tweaking portions of it. Like we have like a very long process of different things that we need to achieve and do. And, and that was set, and then we are now focusing on, okay, so this portion here, you know, we can get better at extracting more of, out of the hops without extracting a stringency because we don't like it. So how do, how do we improve that? And so 
it's incremental kind of inside the whole process and, uh, and, and that was the the good part of this was like uh, we had like a nice process at the beginning of of our um, experience as a big brewery um, and that comes from your home brewing background as well just running trials over and over and over uh, I think so I think a lot of figuring how to brew beer is I mean Having a really strong scientific background helps, but a lot of it is trial and error. Like you can have these really great theories, uh, these mathematical models that say do this, but then you got to try it because brewing is so complicated. It's not like this three-dimensional problem you solve. I mean, there's there's hundreds and hundreds of dimensions into what produces a beer the way it is, and so you can focus on some, but are they the dominant things controlling the flavor? Because you may be missing something, and so you got to try it. Like you have you come with a with a conceptual model, you try it, and then did it work? Sometimes it does, and that's great. But, but not always. And then it's like, well, your conceptual model's wrong. And you need to go back to the drawing board and go, what, what did I miss here? What is producing this one flavor here that I really like or I don't like? And how do I control that to minimize or maximize it, depending on how it tastes? I, I, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, when I talk to brewers a lot of the time, it's, it's always about, uh, you know, going back to what you were saying about uh, uh, Sean Hill of just, you know, the, like the art uh, in some ways, where more people focus on that and it strikes me that more often than not, for, for newer breweries at least, uh, there's a little bit of a, a wish and a prayer that goes into to each batch. Um, from a scientific background, I can't imagine that that ever enters into your mind. Sounds wildly ir- irreproducible to me. <laughs> um, but I, I know some, some people in, in places really do brew that way. Like I, I remember talking to, to Dan Torres, who you mentioned yeah. before. And I'm like, oh, what pH is this? He's like, I don't really go by pH. Like I, I blend until I really like the taste and I'm done. Well, do you know what pH is? It's like, no, I just blend it until I like it, and then I'm done. Does and that make you twitchy? Um, from for producing here, yes. <laughs> for what he gave in the glass was beautiful and, and absolutely worked for him. Uh, so, I mean, and also we haven't gotten into you know very extended barrel aging or anything like that. We probably do need to blend to taste, but right, yeah, still uh, going to measure the pH. Yeah, I'm still going to measure the pH when we're yeah <laughs> to get it to where you want it in your mind. But then, yeah, depending on the beer, like I, I definitely. Personally, I have sort of models of like, you know, if, if the beer has a lot of fruit in it, I do like it a little bit uh, more on the sour side, like pH 3233. If it's supposed to be this nice gentle farmhouse, I like it more 3435. And I, and I know this, and that seems to consistently translate into taste to me. I mean, that's my personal palate, but yeah. But, but, but you know, if you can't do that to control those, then I don't know how you're going to. Well, I think, I, I think the issue on the art is that. Um, the artist's reflection of processes that have been proven by previous artists that are kind of passing to you. So it's kind of the craft idea, you know, like where you have like an artisan that is producing something, he knows how to produce it, he delegates that knowledge to somebody. You know, so that works because Dan Suarez knows how to taste beer and how to blend them, you know, like, and so yeah. can, you, can you have a guy in the cellar that knows exactly what, that's what it wants, and and that's where you need to quantify things. You know, that's where you need to kind of understand. Okay, this is the art, but this is what the scientific background of that art means. You know, because I mean, it's not like the art doesn't have a reason for things to be that way. Maybe they f- they don't know why. Maybe they forgot why, but they're still doing it in a certain way because it produces. Yeah, the, I think the there's a scientific want. underpinning to. It, to absolutely, the it's like it's there. You know, it's just trial and error of of the artisan that was generating all these ideas. You know? Um, science being top of mind uh, for for both of you, um, obviously with your with your backgrounds. Um, where else does where else are you applying 
scientific methods, scientific thoughts uh, to the brewery? To the brewery, I, th- I think probably everywhere. I mean, I would say so. but in ways, but in ways that stand out from from other breweries that maybe, you know, you, you've been to a whole bunch. You you go, you drink around a little bit. Like, where do you guys try to differentiate yourself in that arena? Well, I mean, I think the recent thing is we are developing a mathematical model for hops, and that's the framework is done. We're dialing parameters right now, and that's actually taught us quite a bit. We have a beer coming out called Mass Fluxes where the model suggested we really need to pay more attention to this one flux that we really hadn't been paying attention to, and that's probably quite critical. So it, it, I'm going to, I'm sure that there are people who are very smart who listen to this podcast, although Lord knows why. Um, as, as a writer, numbers terrify me. So as soon as you start talking about math, uh, I go into cold sweats and like freshman year high school algebra, you know, which I think I right, found. Right. Um, all right. So, so walk us through this then, or, you know, um, just so like, so what, why would you so, yeah, treat, treat me like I'm a freshman in high school because that's about as limited as I am. So the, a, a mathematical model is yeah. where you, you come up with a series of equations to sort of model reality. And, and why do you do that? You do that because if you can produce with this series of rules, it confirms you understand your system but then it also lets you explore what's controlling your system and tells you how to refine your system. And you guys are brewing on a 20 barrel brew house. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we had a we had this sort of this nice breakthrough experiment that happened in a, literally a 750 milliliter growler that I was just messing around like, well, how does we need blah, blah, And I was like, oh my God, this is freaking remarkable. And so how do you upscale that? And then we tried that a few times and we saw glimmers of what we were looking for, but then it never really made it to the can. Beer is still very nice, but it didn't really have that thing we were looking for. And so we started putting these equations together to say, well, here's what we think is happening. And then you try to measure what you can from where you can get values you want and plugging it in. And then it starts telling you about this process. And so in that sort of exercise, we learned that one of the mass fluxes in the brewing process, we were not really paying attention to as much as we should. Okay. And that is probably really important. And so we have an experimental beer called Mass Fluxes where we really paid attention to that flux and we're hoping it's going to work. We haven't, it's not, it's like halfway through its life right now, but I think things are looking very promising. Mm -hmm. Um, But so then we have this this mathematical tool that says, you know, if we change this in the brewing process, I mean, one thing, the, the math model lets you go, well, what happens if I do this? What are the predicted results without brewing a... 20 barrel batch and either dumping it down the drain or having something you're not quite happy with. You also have to wait three weeks for the results. So we use this tool to sort of go, all right, we really want to try this next. And then we then that turns into an actual beer. When do you hope to have the beer out? As flexes, I think. Two, two weeks. weeks? Two weekends. Okay. So mid-September. Yeah. Yep. And it's an IPA? Yes. And what's the hops that you guys are using in there? Um, that one is all citra. All citra. Yeah. Okay. And does it help when you have this this uh, this method going to just use one varietal of hops? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we, we've been trying to um, you sort of perturb around a base so you understand all the other processes and just isolate one thing to change, one variable. Yeah. Uh, but you don't want to just do that because, you know, hops are different too. And so it becomes a pretty complicated thing. Yeah. But to isolate this one effect of changing this one mass flux, we're just sticking with one hop bill. Okay. Uh, makes sense. Um, I want to switch back over to the business um, uh, before we come back to the beer as well. But uh, you guys are in the process of launching a tap room, which it, it strikes me as <laughs> it strikes me as odd that you that you didn't 
originally. You know, is that, you cringe as I as I say that. I did I touch a nerve? Is that a no? I don't think so. No, I think it was <laughs> it was a it was a very clear decision that we made when we started. You know, going through the process of of making a brewery that um, either of us wanted to have to deal with what the tap room means. You know, the tap room has to do with a lot more employees, a lot more hours. Um, you know. Um, and it has to have some food. It has to have like a. It's a completely different business. So we didn't want to get into the food business. We didn't know anything about it. Um, and so it was like, okay, so we're engineers. We're coming into this other business of the brewery, which of course we think we can get something that is actually a very good product, and we know we can achieve the goals of making it happen. But we didn't want to stretch that into. Also, we need to learn how to do a tap room and a restaurant and deal with this, you know, because we didn't know. Yeah. And so it was like a, a kind of a very clear decision for us that we didn't want to get into that and we wanted to get into just having very good beer. Um, I mean, quite honestly, trying to open up a commercial brewery was enough for us to take on as a first step. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we were both also working on something else. I mean, like, uh, so, so it was, it was a like lot I'm of... I'm still part-time in the consulting firm. Right now. Okay. That ends in like two weeks. Oh well, that's exciting then. That's uh, congratulations on that. It's, uh... But uh, so so that was that was the beginning, you know, like of okay, this is how we think about this. And then what happened now is that after uh, after almost two years of being being in operation, uh, we started selling beer in November. Um, we know that now we need a tap room. I mean, we knew like probably nine months ago, we started saying, okay, we need a tap room now, and we're probably happy with what we're doing on the brewery side, that we know that we can tackle this new challenge for us, which is kind of making a tap room that is actually consistent with what we want to offer as the beer. You know, like we cannot, I mean, that's one of the key issues is that we don't want to be something doing something that is not consistent with the quality of the beer we're producing, you know? So we think it's important that if we're offering, whatever we're offering needs to be in the same part. So um, because of that, we didn't have it at the beginning, and now we're um, going to open a new location with a tap room. I mean, we started out to, to go way, way back. You know, this is even before the Vermont trips from full swing. We were talking about doing a production brewery for distribution. Okay, like we'll just make beer and send it out. <clears throat> and then, as we, you know, through the, the many years of developing the project, it, you know, we we got kind of. We started waiting in lines and sort of really enjoying lines and all this stuff, but we didn't know that was going to happen when we opened. Like, like who knows? The whole line life thing is a whole other interview, really. And the future of that, I don't know. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you almost have to, when you when you are a, a, a line life brewery, and I've, I've spoken to you know the guys at Other Half and, and, and other places where this happens, and then you've seen other breweries um, who... who have been open for for many many years. Who never had that. Who are now trying to capitalize off of that. It was interesting to me that uh, Victory uh, down in, in Pennsylvania uh, started to do Saturday morning IPA releases, thinking that they could grab some of the lightning in the bottle. And you know, and everybody just kind of you know shrugged. But right. I, I think the big thing that everybody has to to look at if if you do have lines and you guys do when when you guys are open, um, what happens when eventually. The folks who are standing there this Saturday discover another place that they're going to go to next Saturday, and you have to, right. you know, be thinking towards the future. I, I, absolutely, and that in, is in part, you know, where the tap room comes in. Um, you know, we <laughs> we right now have like I don't know what it is eight nine hundred square feet of parking lot that people show up at 
four thirty in the morning. We never expected that. What time do you guys get here? Over the winter, <laughs> I was getting here five six a.m. All right. Um, for for, well, I mean, sometimes it's just fun. <laughs> but but also like we wanted to put out heat lamps for people there doing a bottle sure. share. We wanted to open the door so people could come to use the the bathroom. Yeah. It's, we can't set the porta potties back here for for some weird reasons. But. Okay. And and so we were doing that in the winter when it was super cold out. Um, and you know we didn't really expect that. So I think that our, our plan for the new space is to open up a, a back area that has some heat and some bathrooms. And is that going to serve like a line community for the next five years? I, I don't know, but it should as soon as we open. And then it will be a tap room. You know, be a, a beer garden in a tap room. Um, so as far as a line life and sustainability, I, I don't know, but I think that everybody should buffer against that that going away because it, it might. There's a lot of breweries opening, and that also speaks to diversity in beer as well. I mean, you're saying that you're 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 doing sours, uh, you want to do stouts, you want to get into, um, you know, are, are there plans beyond that? Are there beers and styles that are exciting you that you know you'd like to start to screw around with in case I don't I don't think. Hazy IPA or IPA in general is going away. Like I, no, it's, no. It, it's here, yeah. but you never know where. You know, we get a lot of requests to do like a like a lager or a pilsner, and my yeah. and my my response has been go to see Dan, go see Dan Suarez. Yeah, um, but I, I don't know. Maybe one day once we're really happy with everything else and we have really I strong bell programs going. I think the first thing we want to do is to kind of, uh, we started already, but we need to kind of get very much deeper in, in, into the barrel program. You know, we we just started like putting beer in barrels. And so we want to get into kind of having um, sours and um, stouts that are- uh, like barrel barrels right now. <laughs> and you want to grow it to what? Sorry, what? You want to grow, you have eight right now? Or how many do you want to grow it to? I mean, Let's literally see. eight like oak barrels. Okay. This is, is our growth. Yeah, no, we right. want to we want to grow that to. I mean, we, we have plans to grow that to to even reach a thousand barrels or something. Like that. I mean, I think we want to at least hit a hit a pipeline such that you're doing at least one barrel age release a month or something like that you know, in the distant future. Uh, what do you look for with barrels? Are you going for new bourbon, old? What I mean, right right now for uh, for the bourbon barrels, we we have a good relationship with Hill Rock Distilleries. Um, and that started with, we took a tour, we got to know them. Uh, they really liked our beers. So we bring the beer and we go. And that their, helps. their bourbon's amazing. And their, their whole process, their, their, their ethics, their philosophy is sort of in line with ours. And so we started working with them and just picking up a few barrels at a time. And we haven't put them in a bottle yet, but uh, we really like their, the way they do things and the quality of the bourbon. So we figured it would blend really well with our, our, the stats we're making. You just brought up two really interesting words that I don't hear as often as I'd like, uh, ethics and philosophy. Uh, what do you see as equilibrium's philosophy? Um, I mean, just to tap off the, the, uh, the Hill Rock thing, they're, they're doing things that even I wish we were doing that, that we can't, but they own 100 acres. They're growing their own malt. It's, uh, I think sustainability is a big one. Um, they're working really well with, our, our, uh, with their local communities. And I think that's something that we've really tried to do quite a bit as well. I mean, it's, it comes from just a, a personal preference, but, but also from, um, you know, eventually when these line lights go away, you're going to be stuck with your, your I, I, I believe the, the future of beer at these smaller scales is there's going to be more breweries, 
no pun intended, in, in equilibrium with their local community. Because that's what happened in Europe and they didn't get hit with prohibition. Right. And so that prohibition kind of reset things in the US. Hands down. And so I think more and more it's going to be interaction with your local community. Uh, and so, you know, right now we're in a bit of a position where you can do stuff with the beer and it's, it's, it's influencing cash flows, it's helping other businesses, it's helping other places get started. It's, you know, we hope to try to help make Middletown a destination location. Um, and that sort of stems from philosophy, like, you know, you could mass produce MC squared at 100,000 barrels and try to flood all over the world, but I don't, it's not something we want to do. I mean, there's enough, there's enough beer going all over the world right now. And so it's a little bit of pride in the product and also working with your local community, I think. And then trying to use some of that, I don't know if power is the right word, but some of the, the position you're in to do some good with it. Yeah, know, the we, influence. Yeah, yeah. like we, we try to do a lot of sort of charity causes and, and, and raffles for whatever kind of happens to come across our plate and try to use our influence to, to do some good for, for people in the community. But where does ethics come in? Because, I mean, this is, you know, it, when people talk about the alcohol industry overall, I mean, there's, there's a lot of skullduggery and there's a lot of, uh, even among smaller craft players these days, it's, uh, the, the store shelves aren't getting any bigger. There's, you know, bars aren't adding more tap handles. There's, you know, the, the business side of things can be, you know, a, a fair, fairly cutthroat, um, you know, a, a, as it were. Um, so for you to bring up, you know, ethics, I think is, is, is wonderful. But where do you see a brewery's ethical responsibilities, like first and foremost? I, I mean, I think that depends on kind of the dimensions of ethics that, that we're talking about. Um, but I, I think trying to make a sustainable product and sourcing locally, I think is important. And then trying to use that, that product to help better your community versus maximize profit is an important dimension. Um, you know, and there's yeah. give and play in all these, these areas. Cause sometimes like, you know, we would, we would love to use a, a malt grower 10 minutes away, but we can't, it's just not feasible. And so we have to source not locally, but yeah, I think that's the trend right now that's transitioning. Where the, the malt, for example, in New York is getting better and better. It's getting more affordable. And then when it makes sense, we could start doing that more and more. I know a couple other places like Plan D's have been doing that for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's I mean, there's more maltsters coming online. Uh, New York has a farm brewer's license, which mm -hmm. I think by, what is it, 2019, uh, brewers are going to be required. 90% of their beers have to be made with all New York state ingredients. So there's... Definitely a good outlet for not including water. Not, about that. Oh, <laughs> not including water. Well, you can't go. My beer is ninety percent by mass New York water. I'm very good. That would have been a fun loophole. That's um, um, you talked about sustainability, but you both come from uh, environmental backgrounds as well, and and I, I think that it as much as people talk about flavor and process and science of beer, um, there are great uh, environmental impacts. I mean, brewing beer uses a lot of water. Uh, not all of it leaves the brewery clean. Uh, there are concerns of climate change these days uh, affecting uh, how the ingredients are grown and, and, and the ability for them to be uh, sustainable in the long term. Uh, you know, packaging and, and, and everything else that, that, that you know, comes with it. Um, you guys obviously have unique standpoints in, in coming from uh, environmental science and environmental sciences background. Um, where do you think we, the consumers, should be thinking uh, or, or putting our attention when it comes to environmental issues and, and what can we be doing to... With beer stuff? Yeah. I, mean, I would say that a lot of it is, is on education, but for example, one thing we did really simple 
uh, through the Ronald McDonald House. Is people just, you know, one, recycle your pack tech, recycle your cans. But you can bring back your aluminum tabs, okay. on top of cans, and yeah. we, we collect them here. And then that working with Ronald McDonald House, they turn that back into charity, charity donations. And so it's just real simple things. Just just be aware. Don't, don't go out and throw your cans all over a stream or something like that. You know, keep them with you. Recycle them. But then obviously in the in the brew house though, I mean, where are you guys putting your environmental backgrounds to to, to good work? Oh, with reducing like. I don't think. Carefully at the scale we are, I mean, like it, it gets into it really tricky media. I mean, I was looking into options to begin with because it was like uh, part of the background. I was looking into options of kind of recapturing CO two. However, the amount of um, the amount of issues of like using fermentation, you produce a lot of CO two that is vented. Yeah. Okay, so, but the issue with that CO two is that you know it's not pure. It has a lot of bacteria or whatever it's in your in kind of a farmhouse. It will have bacteria. It will have yeast. It will have you know, um, so so you need to actually have a machinery for cleaning it, and it was like more expensive, you know, to clean it. But for the production we do here, to clean, have the machinery to clean it and the energy to clean it, that was more expensive than the CO two. So, um, yeah, there's only a very few breweries that actually recapture CO two. It, it is very hard to do. Yeah. So that's one yeah. of the things that you think about. Then the other thing is uh, trying to be efficient with the energy. We're trying to be as efficient as possible. I mean, most breweries also have like I mean. The capabilities on, on the size we are. I mean, granted, also we are minimal, you know, on the size of these. I mean, these look big for somebody who is not used to breweries, but sure. you know, for for the size of a brewery, we are kind of in the lower lower, you know, end of, of production. And so what we do is like we try to reuse the heat that we generate on like a kind of uh, cooling things, you know, and then we use that hot water again, you know, like we kind of heat water and then we recuperate that water and then we use it. Yeah. So those kind of things that we try to do, um, and and but that is that is about that. Of course, the spent grain goes into farmers, sure. which is kind of being used um, for dairy farms and whatnot. So that's kind of a no-brainer here in this area where we are. There's a lot of possibilities to do that. I, I mean, I think a little bit on some other lines too. We try to keep a good eye on kind of nice packaging. So there's some place that makes like pack tech out of, out of recycled grain mm-hmm. and, and, and things like that. And I, I think those products are kind of almost there, but not quite. Yeah. So like we can't have pack tech that if it sits in a cooler full of ice, it's going Yeah, exactly. That's not quite ready for prime time in our opinion. But I, I think stuff like that is, is probably, you know, going to happen and come around. And so... When that does, I would encourage the consumers to keep an open mind about it. Cause, sure. Because you'll have an open mind about it, right? Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. stuff that, that, that yeah. Absolutely. But, but, but like, you know, if we, we take it and it puts it in the cooler in, in an hour, it's like... That's what you were. Oh, yeah. It's fish food, right? I mean, yeah, like, there's those ones that were going to come out a couple of years ago, the uh, disintegrating rings that you could throw yeah. into the ocean and... Uh, yeah. yeah. You can't disintegrate in the time scale of like an hour or two. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Carlsberg tried doing a, a wooden bottle or a, a pulp bottle a couple of years ago that uh, had like a six month shelf life, but some of the reports that were coming in were like towards the end of that six months, like it tasted yeah. like wood pulp and, right. and you can do your Incredible Hulk and you know the, crush it in your hand. Uh, yeah. So I think those things yeah. are really cool and I have high hopes for them and we'd certainly incorporate them when they make sense, but yeah. they're not quite ready for, for prime time, I don't think. One of the questions I've been asking folks and as we start to wrap up here... Um, What's your hope for beer? 
um, that my hope for beer. Yeah. Um, I actually sort of like where I, where I said I, I think it's going to go, where it becomes sort of a, a sustainable balance with your local community, and it becomes not just a product but an experience, where it gives people reason to, to go out and get together and socialize. And one of the things I always loved about Vermont is like the minimal TV scenes. Mm-hmm. And people were talking and engaging and talking about you know their lives and their issues and, and enjoying each other's company. Not constantly going into untapped and yeah. Yeah, it's not it. like this. You know, the, the cell phone life, which I think is sort of strange, takes you out of the beer moment. Yeah. What I see about what? what uh, a hope Sorry. for a hope for beer. For the beer industry, or in general, I, I leave it open to everybody's own interpretation. Mm. I'm thinking about just kind of having a nice beer to drink. Uh, <laughs> I wish. I, well, I mean, I'm right, I'm right that's there. That's my hope you. for like, beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I hope to have one right now. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I think in the beer industry, we're kind of in the in a nice, very, very interesting place where you know this is evolving into a completely different country. Like Pete was saying on on people having locally sourced beers that they're fun of and you know like uh, you have like many many local places that you can go and people are just patronizing their own local stuff i think that that is a great thing um and i think you know the the um, the interaction with the community is interesting it's it's a way of making beer something that is um more connected to the public you know before to me like a kind of big beer was just a, the producer and it was, they were like uh, generating something uh, that people were consuming and now uh, the experience is what's, what matters. I mean, it's actually the, the, the local aspects of it, the, the fact that a lot of people know us. I mean, like the, our clients actually know who we are and, and I think that is interesting and it has like a completely different set. And also you, you go to Pennsylvania and you find the same thing with the local brewery there, you know, and so that is kind of the the um, the relationship I, I think is going into and I hope that that kind of gets doesn't get prevented by some of the forces uh, that could be important you know like uh, and tend to confuse what what's about the craft beer and what's about the big beer oh the, the fake craft beer <laughs> I mean there is some of that I wanted to say or even some of the bad craft beer that's out there <laughs> yeah. these days as well yeah. Yeah. well I mean that that will sort out itself I think you know that doesn't have like as long as it doesn't have any any I mean, it's just a guy trying to make some beer and it's not very good. That's 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 honest. I mean, okay, I'm not doing a very good job, but it's honest. You know, the other things are not. I mean, I think, you know, that's kind of one of the things I hope people start realizing. I think there's a lot of fight back going into what, what's big beer and what their interests are and versus, you know, kind of a small craft breweries, you know. Because even the, the kind of the American brands are not American anymore. Mm-hmm. That's also true. Uh, Ricardo Petroni, Peter Oates, co-founders of Equilibrium Brewing here in New York's Hudson Valley. Thanks so much for sitting down and talking beer with me. Oh, thanks for coming up. Thank you. Yep. And uh, you guys should definitely check them out online. It's uh, eqbrew.com. And uh, the line forms as early as 4.30 on can release days. So uh, uh, get your early stake out your spot with, uh, with your chair and uh, uh, definitely get some good beer. Uh, if you have questions for me, guests you'd like to hear, questions or topics you'd like addressed on the program, you can reach out to me at John Hollich, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beerandbrewing.com. You can also go to beerandbrewing.com where you can read all about homebrewing, the craft beer scene, and uh, 
find recipes and more. Uh, while there, you can also subscribe to the magazine. Please subscribe to the magazine and uh, reach out and join the conversation on Twitter at John underscore Hall. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks again for listening. And uh, guys, thanks so much. Yeah, Thank you. Our pleasure. Cheers. This episode has been brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, the country's only not-for-profit membership organization dedicated to promoting the community of homebrewers and empowering homebrewers to make the best beer in the world. Brew with the AHA at homebrewersassociation.org. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.